Amen. We'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 4. 2 Samuel chapter 4 will be our text this Lord's Day. And we, if you've been with us in our study in recent weeks, you may have noticed there's a lot of killing in 2 Samuel. Uh, pretty much every chapter thus far, someone gets killed or murdered or there's a battle. Uh, the first chapter, you have David hearing about the death of Saul and of Jonathan. And you may recall it was uh, the Amalekite who came and gave him that news. And this Amalekite, uh, we're not confident, but it would appear that he doesn't tell the truth to David. That he says that he finished Saul off. And he, he does this in a way where he seems to want to impress David that Saul was dead. He brings David Saul's crown and his armlet. And David, of course, many times throughout first Samuel we saw, he, he revered that office of being the Lord's anointed, and he does not receive that news well. In fact, he kills the Amalekite. And the second chapter of Second Samuel, when we've got David anointed as the king of the south, and you have Ishbosheth declared the king of northern kingdoms, and this creates a, a civil war among the Israelites, and so there's much death in that chapter. In fact, the scripture records that 20 of David's men are killed and 360 from the house of Saul are killed. And then that chapter ended, you may recall, with Abner killing Ashiel, who was Joab's brother, which then comes into play in chapter 3 because Abner defects from the house of Saul. He, he comes to David's camp. He makes a covenant with him, but this does not sit well with Joab. And that chapter ends with Joab killing Abner. And then we come to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And if your Bible has a heading there for the fourth chapter, it probably says something along the lines of Ishbosheth murdered <laughs> or is murdered. And so there's more killing and there's more murder. And, and this goes on and on. And the question for us then is, what do we do with all this? I mean, how does this relate to us? Today, as we come now towards the end of July 2021, as we have gathered today at Bloomfield Baptist Church, how in the world did these events that took place 3,000 years ago that seem to just have a lot of bloodshed in them, how do they relate to us? How do we apply this to our lives today? Well, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because that's what we're going to look at this morning as we open up God's Word together. So let's begin at a reverence for God's word. If you're able, if you would stand as I read for us uh, the fourth chapter of 2 Samuel. If you've read ahead, you may have noticed this is one of the shorter chapters in 2 Samuel. So there's something to be thankful for this morning, especially if the one reading it. So 2 Samuel chapter 4, this is what the word of God says to us. When Ishbosheth saw his son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. And all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Baroth. For Baroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Now Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled at his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. 
Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab, and Banah set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And as they came into the midst of the house, as if to get wheat, they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Barathite, As the Lord lives who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. If you would pray with me. Father, we do ask that you would help us to see how this word, this inspired word, how it indeed applies to us today, and Lord, how it points us towards the gospel of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, as we study your word together, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we would be brought to repentance and to faith and to trust in Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So back to your question, <laughs> what do we do with all this murder and killing? How, how do we apply 2 Samuel chapter 4 to our lives? Well, I think for a lot of us, when we come to a passage like this, passages like this, our response is to say, well, well that's just the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament's filled with killings and and murders in fact as you begin your study of the scripture you don't get very far in the book of genesis until you have brother killing brother there's murder after murder killing after killing war after war and it's easy for us when we come to a passage like this to just kind of write it off as well that, that that's just how the old testament is but if we're not careful that that way of thinking creates a separation and not just a separation between the Old and New Testament, but really a separation between the Old Testament and us. To where we look to the Old Testament as something that doesn't really apply to us today, where we look to the Old Testament that's somehow separate from the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And as a result of that separation, we spend, sadly, very little time studying the Old Testament and really looking at passages like 2 Samuel 4 and how they apply to us today now if you've been with us long at Bloomfield Baptist Church you know that I like to spend time in the Old Testament <laughs> I enjoy walking through the Old Testament in fact that the way that I approach preaching and teaching is, is I alternate between we we walk through a book of the Old Testament we walk through a book of the New Testament and so in the 
uh, close to 11 years now that I've been here as your pastor, I've preached about 500 sermons, and just over half of those sermons have been from the Old Testament. And so uh, no one needs to convince me that the Old Testament applies, but I feel like often I have to convince others that, that there's great application to be had from the Old Testament, and there's great insights into the gospel of Jesus to be had from the Old Testament because all Scripture is inspired and is the Word of God. One of the theologians that's been very helpful to me over the years in, in helping to see how all these pieces fit together uh, is, is passed on now, uh, but he wrote a very helpful book, uh, Alec Matei. The book's titled, Look to the Rock. And in that, Matei says this, The Old Testament is the Word of God. It exists not to record for our amusement the quaint notions of ancient man, but for our learning imperishable principles of divine truth. I read that to you this morning because I think it's significant that we understand when we look at passages like this, we just can't write them off as, well, that's just the Old Testament, that's just the way things were, that's, that's some quaint experience of ancient days. It's not like that anymore. Now, we need to look to the Old Testament and look to First and Second Samuel and understand that these are imperishable principles of divine truth. But we have to dig a bit to find them. And so that's what we're going to do in the time we have this morning. Where we're going to look at what some of these imperishable principles are. Beginning with the first one I'll put there in your notes. Point one, the principle that evildoers will fade like grass. Evildoers will fade like grass. This comes from Psalm 37 where David writes this. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. I imagine as the Holy Spirit is inspiring King David to record Psalm 37, that David is likely looking back on his experiences with Saul. He's probably thinking about times that he did fret, and he was overwhelmed, and he was concerned, and and we would say he had every reason to be. I mean, there David is, anointed by God to be the next king of Israel, sitting across from the one who holds the throne. And how does Saul respond? He throws a spear at David. He tries to take David's life multiple times. He gives him his daughter's hand in marriage, only to take that daughter away and give her to another man. He chases David out of his home, out of his country. David is on the run for years, always looking over his shoulder, and given multiple opportunities to avenge himself and kill Saul. He, he doesn't do it, and there's these exchanges between David and Saul where it seems that Saul is sorry and Saul is repentant, but Saul always goes back on his word. And so you can imagine for David, time and time again, he probably was fretting <laughs> He probably was worried. He probably was anxious. Why? Because the, the evildoer, Saul, seemed to be prospering. And in the times when he was seeking to walk in righteousness, he was suffering. But then as all these things play out, David is able to look back and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write down, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Why? Why not be envious of the wrongdoer, David? Well, he says it, for they will soon fade like grass and wither like the green herb. 
And that's exactly what we see taking place in 2 Samuel chapter 4. The fading away of Saul's house. You may recall back in our study of 1 Samuel, we came to chapter 13, and that's where there's this exchange between Samuel and Saul. That's where we have this first grievous act of disobedience by Saul in which Samuel then comes to him, confronts him, and tells him what could have been will not be. And now God's favor will be removed from him. In that encounter, Samuel says to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then, he's telling him what would have happened. For then, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He's saying, Saul, this is what you have lost. But now your kingdom shall not continue. We see the fruition of this word now playing playing out. Now, you may recall in our study, this, this cutting off of Saul, it doesn't happen immediately. I mean, Saul continues to reign. Years go by. His wickedness grows. His, his evil increases. But then the day comes of reckoning, of accountability. And he dies in battle. Jonathan, his son, dies with him. Two of his other sons die in the same battle. It And then what we're left with of Saul's household is his cousin Abner and his son Ishbosheth. And then Abner defects and goes to the house of David. And then Abner's murdered. And so now when we come to 2 Samuel chapter 4, now we've just got Ishbosheth. Verse 1 tells us. So Ishbosheth, Saul's son, he hears that Abner died at Hebron, and his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. So, So look at the picture we have now of the household of Saul. Well, we're left with Ishbosheth, a king with no courage, a king who really seemed to be a, a puppet king who, who didn't necessarily want this place of power, but it really seems that Abner was the one calling the shots, pulling the strings, but now Abner's gone, and so the picture we have of Ishbosheth is rather pitiful. It's, it's a puppet with no one to pull the strings. And so we have this king without courage. And notice the effect that this has on those northern kingdoms in Israel. All Israel was dismayed. So the Hebrew text there implies they were hopeless and without direction. The visual picture here is of Israelites wandering from place to place, hopelessly looking for someone to lead them, and yet having no leader, they are overwhelmed with fear. And all of this has come because of God's word through Samuel to Saul, that his kingdom would not continue. And now the reckoning is here. And now we see the effects of Saul's sin on his household. As it plays out, and you continue the passage, we do see there's still people who, at least there might be the appearance of loyalty to the house of Saul. There's the mention of these two brothers, Bana and Rechab, who... They're, they're, the emphasis here in the passage seems to be that, that they are a, a part of the northern kingdom, that they were from the tribe of Benjamin, which you may recall, that's the tribe that Saul was from. And so these are people who you would expect to have great loyalty to Saul, great loyalty to the household of Saul. And yet we see as the passage plays out, they're going to murder Ishbosheth in his sleep. And so it's a sad sad picture 
But then we get to verse 4, and it, it seems like there's just this random verse thrown in there about Mephibosheth, and we're going to come back to Mephibosheth, but I, I think there's reason for Mephibosheth to be mentioned here. We, we learn in verse 4 that Mephibosheth is the crippled son of Jonathan, that when uh, Mephibosheth's nurse heard of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan in battle, there was probably cause for concern that now they're going to come after the household of Saul, and so she takes Jonathan's son and she flees with him, but there's an accident, she drops him or she falls on him, and he is crippled. And now years have gone by, he's probably about 12 years old at this point, and I think the reason that it's recorded at this place in the text about Mephibosheth is just so we can see that this is what's left of Saul's household. A son who's a king without courage, a puppet king, the people are dismayed, and the only remaining heir, it seems, is a crippled boy who can't lead his people into battle. The, his, the household of Saul is in disarray. Why? Because evildoers will fade like grass. A day of reckoning will indeed come, and for Saul's household it has. And that's why David will later write in Psalm 37, Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade away like grass and wither like the green herb. Does that apply to us today? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, look at the world we live in. Look at what appears to be evildoers prospering. Look at how often we see wickedness flourishing look at how often our conversations are filled with comments like well can it get any worse than this and be reminded brothers and sisters that evil doers will fade like grass that the day of reckoning will come that god is not silent or somehow unaware of this and one day all wrongs will be righted and in between this day and that day we are given an instruction from God. Romans 12, 21. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. We are to trust in the Lord, even in the darkest of days. I believe that's the first imperishable principle of divine truth we see in this passage. The second one is this. And really, how we do the first one. We are to point to wait patiently on the Lord so back to Psalm 37 as David's writing about these evildoers and how their day will come to an end he records in Psalm 37 verse 7 be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him Again, I think we have at this point David reflecting back on so many of his experiences with Saul. On all those years when Saul was seeking to take his life, where Saul was seemingly prospering and David was suffering. And at the end of it all, David is able to say, fret not. How? I mean, think about that. You and I have times in our life where we are overwhelmed and we're burdened. And for somebody to come along and say to us, well, just don't worry about it. <laughs> it doesn't just take the worry off, does it? 
You tell someone how anxious you are about a lot of things, and they say to you, well, well just stop being anxious. Well, that, that doesn't fix it. So, so how does this work for David to say, fret not? Well, well, he tells us what it looks like by saying that it's not just telling you not to do something. He's telling you what you should do in order not to do that. And what you should do, he says, is be still before the Lord and wait patiently for I don't know about you, but that's a hard one for me. <laughs> I was talking to one of our church members last night and praying with them over the phone. They're, they're going through a struggle right now with an illness, and they were talking about how the hardest thing for them is just to wait and be patient. I, I think that's something most of us identify with. You know, when a crisis hits, so many of us come along and we say, well, what can I do? We, we like to be doers. We like to be fixers. It's very hard to stop. And be still and wait. And yet that's an instruction we're given here. And we're, we're given a picture in 2 Samuel 4 of what it looks like when we do that and what it looks like when we don't do that. Now here we have a contrast between David, who, who at this point in his life, I believe, is waiting patiently on the Lord. That's not something he does well all the time. But here I think he is waiting on the Lord. And then you contrast that with these two brothers, Rakab and Banah, who I believe do the exact opposite. See, rather than waiting on the Lord and the Lord's plans to play out, that they take matters into their own hands. So they come into Ishbosheth's house while he's resting, and they murder him in his sleep. Now the question is, why would they do that? Well, we don't know a lot about their motives. And in fact, we only have one verse here that tells us of anything that they said in this whole whole narrative. It's verse 8. When they say to David, upon bringing the head of Ishbosheth to him, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. That's the only words we have recorded from these brothers. They seem to indicate that these brothers saw themselves as being used by God to avenge the household of David and his ill treatment from the household of Saul. And if that's the case, then they, they understood rightly that David was the anointed king. They understood rightly that Saul was wrong in his ill treatment of David. They understood rightly that Saul's house would come to an end and that Saul's offspring would perish. But where they did wrong is they took matters into their own hands. And the ends don't justify the means. They did not wait on the Lord, much less patiently wait on the Lord. They did not trust in the Lord. They made a what appears to be a politically calculated decision to cut off any threat to David's throne, and they murdered Ishbosheth. And their actions are called out by David as evil and as wicked. And they're a reminder to us that the ends don't justify the means, that we're not to take matters into our own hands, that we need to stop and we need to wait. And they come to David and they say, we avenged you. But what does the scripture say about that? Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, 
but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, there are times when God uses human instruments to bring about that justice. But that's not what they did here. They murdered a man in his sleep. I mean, we're given these details. First, we're told in the passage that they stabbed him in the stomach and they escaped. And then it almost plays out like a a conversation here where somebody says, well, what do you mean they stabbed him in the stomach and they escaped? And then we're given further detail. Well, they went into the house and while he was sleeping, they went in there and they killed him and then they cut his head off. This was brutal. It was wicked and it was evil. And it seems that their motive probably had less to do with avenging David and more to do with advancing their position in David's court. And that's why when they come to David, he brings up the Amalekites. Because that's what the Amalekite did when he brought Saul's crown and Saul's armlet to him. He he wanted to advance his position in David's court. He was wrong and they were wrong. And friends, this is what comes about so often when we try to take matters into our own hands. When we think that the end justifies the means, that that we can somehow get to the right thing but go about it the wrong way. And the scripture says, no. No, we need to wait on the Lord. We need to trust in Him and He will bring about His plans to fruition in His timing and in His ways. We need to do what is so often the hardest thing to do. We need to wait. And we need to trust. That's a principle of divine truth we see here. And a third is this, number three. A reminder that the Lord loves justice. And he will not forsake his saints. Again, Psalm 37. David writes this in verse 27 and following. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. And the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And so we see here, at this particular moment in salvation history, that that David is king, is God's divine agent of justice. And we see this in how he responds to these brothers. These brothers who, who bring him the severed head of Ishbosheth, notice his response. Now, not only does he remind him them of what happened to the Amalekite, but he says this to him, verse 11. How much more when wicked men, so this reveals who they are, this reveals their hearts, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house in his bed, shall I not now require blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth and so the hearts reveal that the intentions are clear at this point that these were wicked men who did a wicked thing and God uses David to bring justice in this situation that the blood of Ishbosheth required the blood of the ones who murdered him and David drew that blood with the sword it's a bloody scene <laughs> it's a bloody book But it's a reminder to us that the wages of sin indeed is death. And justice require that the wages of sin be paid. And that's important for us to take away from this passage and from God's word. That that biblical justice 
requires blood for sin. We are wrong to imagine that somehow the gospel teaches us that when we repent and trust in Jesus, that God just takes out an eraser and wipes our slate clean. That's not the gospel. We're wrong to think that in responding to the gospel, that somehow at that point, God just forgets about anything we ever did wrong. That's not the gospel. What the gospel teaches us is that the wages of sin is death, and that Jesus Christ on the cross paid that wage for us through the shedding of his blood. God did not wipe our slate clean. He took out his wrath on his son. God did not somehow suddenly get supernatural amnesia. He brought the due wrath of sin on his blameless son in your place and in mine. And the beauty of the gospel is this. The debt was paid in full once and for all. And if you have trusted in Jesus, friend, then your debt's been paid then that wage of sin, it's been paid by Jesus. Then, then you realize what we read in Romans 5.8, that God demonstrates His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did He die? He died to pay that debt. That debt that is owed by sin. Read about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That this great exchange takes place on the cross where Jesus dies the death that we deserve. And as we repent and have faith and trust in him, we receive his righteousness which we, we don't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel, and we're reminded of that when we read accounts like 2 Samuel 4 that give us this, this bloody account of what justice truly requires. It points us towards the throne of Jesus. David's road to the throne was soaked in blood. We read about Murder after murder, killing after killing. And the great difference here is that Jesus' road to the throne is soaked in blood as well, but it's soaked in His blood that He shed, that you and I might have life. And friends, this should come as a great encouragement to us today as we're reminded that God indeed does love justice and He's not going to forsake His saints. That's who we are when we trust in Jesus, we are saints. And he will not forsake us. He, he has not forgotten us. We, we have been blood bought and redeemed by the Son. He, he knows your name and he knows mine. And friend, he has not forgotten you. And he's not forgotten me. And he's not abandoned us in this world of wickedness and evildoers. No, he will not forget or forsake his saints, David writes in Psalm 37. So how does this passage relate to us today? Well, it reminds us 
in a world full of evildoers that one day every single one of them will fade like the grass. It reminds us in times, perhaps right now in your life and in mine, where we're looking for a quick fix, an easy solution, an immediate answer, that the Lord wants us to wait patiently for Him. It reminds us in a world where nothing seems fair and everything seems unjust, that God is a God who loves justice. And one day He will right all wrong. And so the call for us this Lord's Day and each Lord's Day is the same, to put our trust in Him. So we invite you to do that today. If you would stand together as I pray for us and as we now respond to God's Word together. Father, we thank You for the imperishable truths of your word we thank you God for the wisdom that can be gleaned even from bloody passages like 2nd Samuel 4 we thank you Lord for the thread of the gospel that we see from the first verse of your word to the last the thread that runs directly through 2nd Samuel 4 that helps us to see that the the wages of sin is death and that thread continues up through the gospel where we learn how that wage ultimately is paid for us by Jesus on the cross. So help us, Lord, this morning to be a people who listen to your word and who respond to your word through repentance and faith. Help us to be a people this morning who wait patiently on you and who trust in you and who don't take matters into our own hands and constantly try to fix everything. But, Lord, who trust you and who wait on you. Help us to be a people who trust in Christ and in Christ alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church family and guests, we invite you now to respond to God's word with us. And one of the primary ways we respond is through our worship. We're going to worship together as we sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. And as we worship, we invite you to come if the Lord's leading you to come and publicly profess Christ as Lord, to take that next step of obedience in baptism, to start the process of joining this church family, or if you just need someone to pray with you, I'd be privileged to do that this Lord's Day. So we invite you to come and we invite you to sing, I will glory in my Redeemer.